back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This is going to be yet another study guide recorded away from my home in Chicago, which means I don't have my usual setup. So once again, apologies if the sound quality isn't as good, if you hear any weird echoes, any weird noises, or if you hear a dog run into the room while I'm recording. I'm doing my best to make do, as I think everyone is during this time of coronavirus and social distancing, social isolating, self-quarantine, whatever it is that you're doing under your local health department's recommendations and regulations. Continuing my theme of last week, I am talking about another famous Charlotte from history whose story, as it so happens, also involves some interesting public health decisions. This time, I'm going to be talking about Charlotte Corday, a very tragic heroine from the French Revolution. Her study guide involves a fun skin disease, some questionable wigs, and a missing head. Let's begin. Charlotte Corday was born July 27, 1768, as Marie-Anne Charlotte Corday d'Armont, but obviously no one is going to call her that because that's quite the mouthful, so she is known to history as simply Charlotte Corday. She is either the second or fourth child, depending on exactly what source you're reading, from a somewhat noble family in the Normandy area of France. Her father is Jacques-Francois de Corday de Mont, the youngest son in a somewhat noble family who has familial connections to a well-known French poet, Pierre Cornelie, and her mother is Charlotte-Marie Gautier de Afou, which I probably hideously mispronounced because, as we all know by now, French pronunciation is not my strong suit, even though, theoretically, I can fluently read French for research purposes only. Despite her father's noble connections, by the time Charlotte is born, the Corday family is living in genteel poverty in the French town of Linares, which, once again, I'm sorry for my inability to pronounce French. When Charlotte is around 14, her mother dies in 1782. Thanks to the whole genteel poverty and having multiple children, her father simply isn't able to take care of Charlotte and her various other siblings. As a result, Charlotte gets sent away to be raised at the convent of Abbey Adams, which was created by William the Conqueror's wife in the city of Caen, Normandy. However, Charlotte does not go to the convent alone. She is going to be sent there with her older sister, Eleanor. However, this convent ends up being a very good choice for the rest of Charlotte's childhood. Even though she is separated from her family, the convent is extremely competent because Charlotte comes out of her time there knowing how to read, getting a really strong artistic education, and knowing quite a lot about the Enlightenment, especially one Rousseau. For a while during her time at the convent, it looks like Charlotte is seriously thinking about becoming a nun, but then she decides that, no, religious life 
isn't really for her. She likes interacting with the rest of humanity. Thank you very much. During her time at the convent, Charlotte befriends the nun of the abbess, Louis Le Dulce de Pont-Coulant. Louis is a member of the king's bodyguard, and the two get really close. Specifically, Louis is going to be a political inspiration to the teenage Charlotte Corday. He is going to lean more Girondist, more about the Girondists later on, and due to his political leanings, Louis is going to end up being put into exile for most of the French Revolution. However, Louis is really the first person Charlotte interacts with who has strong political convictions, which is going to be really important because by now we're in the late 1780s, which means that we're getting ever closer to the French Revolution. And what do you look at that? In 1789, the French Revolution begins. While Charlotte's close friend Louis was a Girondist, which means that he's slightly more moderate revolutionary when push comes to shove, most of the rest of the people Charlotte is interacting with, specifically her family, lean in a much more royalist direction on account of the family being members of the minor nobility thing. Specifically, two of her brothers are going to end up joining in a royalist army that is put together to fight off the revolutionary forces across France. However, this joining the army thing will not end well for either of her two brothers, and they will both die during the French Revolution. While all this is going on, and the French Revolution is starting to pick up steam, Charlotte is going to meet yet another, yet another nephew of her abbess, Henri the Vicomte of Boscoun. Henri, when compared to Louis, is much more pro-royalist. In fact, he is so pro-royalist that he will be torn apart by an angry mob in Cayenne. According to some contemporary Jacobin sources, Henri's death completely devastated Charlotte and convinces her to kill more extreme revolutionaries. However, this seems pretty unlikely because Charlotte is going to go in a slightly more anti-royalist political direction later on, and as we're going to see, she doesn't really show much interest in killing revolutionaries until the 1790s, and Henri's death occurs in 1789. So, 1789, 1790, Charlotte is still at the convent. She's meeting various men who have various political leanings when it comes to the French Revolution, but as far as we know, Charlotte hasn't really made her mind up about what she thinks politically. And then 1791 happens, and due to the new, slightly more radical government that is taking hold in France, her convent school gets shut down because the new French regime, which still technically has a king, it is still a constitutional monarchy, just the king is having less and less power, doesn't like religion, so all religious schools, which include convents, get shut down. Now that the convent is closed, Charlotte and her older sister, Eleanor, go to live with an aunt who the two were fairly close to in Cayenne because 
let's be honest, there aren't really that many other options for a single woman in her early 20s in revolutionary France. Like the rest of the Corday family, this aunt isn't particularly rich, and from what it sounds like, Charlotte's life with this aunt wasn't particularly easy. At certain times, Charlotte was basically acting like a servant to said aunt. However, despite the quasi-servitude that Charlotte was living in, she still had the time to continue her reading and to further her political education because most of the reading that Charlotte was doing in 1791 was still very much focused on Enlightenment thinkers like her old favorite Rousseau and extending into the work of Voltaire. By the time Charlotte is living with her aunt, she gets a reputation for being extremely pretty. She's tall, slender, has blue eyes, and lots of dark hair. Later on, after Charlotte's death, a lot of pro-revolutionary propaganda will say that Charlotte powders her hair in an attempt to connect her to the elite nobility, but on her internal passport, her hair is marked as brown, and most of her contemporaries say that it was either light brown or dark gold, so it seems unlikely that Charlotte actually was powdering her hair. By the time Charlotte moves to Cayenne, the city had become a center for the Girondist movement, especially after the political group had gotten unofficially exiled from Paris by early 1793, which leads to the question, who were the Girondists? As a quick note, this is just going to be an super, super basic overview of the Girondists. If you want a much more detailed look at the Girondists and the French Revolution overall, I would highly recommend season three of Mike Duncan's Revolutions because, quite frankly, the man is a genius. Basically, the Girondists are the more moderate of the two major parties in the French National Convention. They don't love Louis XVI, but they don't necessarily want to execute him. By 1793, the Girondists tend to be led by middle-class professionals. They're a little bit more willing to compromise. They want a Republican form of government, but they're still fine with having a figurehead king. They're really going to be going up against the more radical mountain faction of the National Convention, who do want to see Louis executed. Thank you very much. The mountain, as I mentioned, is much more radical when it comes to executing Louis, is more sympathetic towards the working class, and is much more tied to the Parisian Jacobins. The execution of Louis XVI signals a huge loss of Girondin power to the mountain, and by June 1793, the mountain has the upper hand and starts arresting and executing various leading Girondins. Charlotte naturally probably was more pro-royalist due to her family's background, but through her time in Cayenne becomes more and more sympathetic towards the Girondin cause. She begins going to Girondist meetings in the city and goes to watch the Girondist deputies leave Cayenne in a pretty failed attempt to take on the Parisian Jacobins in the summer of 1793. She slowly becomes super influenced by the rhetoric and ideas, which was probably helped by her connections to Louis Le Dulce, her 
former Abbess's nephew, who, as I mentioned, was a pretty huge Girondist sympathizer. In addition, in the summer of 1793, she entered into a relationship with a Girondist named Francoline. It's unclear what exactly their relationship was. They probably just wrote each other a lot of letters, but almost certainly had feelings of some sort for each other, but their relationship almost certainly did not become physical. However, there's also no hard evidence if this Girondist named Francoline even existed, which hugely complicates things. But we do know that by the summer of 1793, Charlotte Corday is very pro-Girondist and is very, very upset with the fact that the Jacobins are executing many Girondists in Paris. By July 1793, Charlotte Corday decides that enough is enough. Someone has to save the Girondins. And she personally feels like the attack on the Girondins is being caused by one Jean-Paul Marat and that someone has to kill Marat to stop the further massacring of the Girondins. And she decides that that someone is going to be her. So, on July 9th, 1793, Charlotte moves from Cayenne to Paris. She tells her family that she is simply immigrating to London in an attempt to keep them from worrying her or from trying to stop her because her family is mostly pro-royalist, but in a secret letter called An Address to the French, who are friends of law and peace, that is supposed to be distributed to various high-ranking Girondists. She explains all of her plans and motivations and then leaves for Paris, distributing all of her belongings to various Girondist friends. But who is this Jean-Paul Marat who Charlotte Corday is so hell-bent on killing? Well, I'm going to explain yet again in a very, very quick overview. Jean-Paul Marat was born May 24th, 1743 in the town of Boudray in modern-day Switzerland. In the 1760s, he left home to study medicine and ended up in London. During his time in London, he became a well-known doctor by the 1770s, wrote several books on philosophy and politics, including one arguing that slavery was in fact bad, as well as the philosophical essay on man, which was, some, which was somewhat successful. He also became a professor of literature at St. Andrews in Edinburgh for a bit, so yeah, he was definitely a major underachiever. Marat then returned back to France in 1777 and became a physician to the guards of one of Louis XVI's younger brothers. During his time in France, he also worked on science, especially experiments on electricity and light. Due to his scientific work, he even managed to work with Benjamin Franklin for a bit. He was so interested in science that he retired from his physician's position to really focus on his scientific experiments. However, his experiments weren't quite enough to get him into the French Academy of Sciences, which made him extremely upset and started to poison him against various French elites who he felt unfairly blocked him from entrance into the academy. When the French Revolution began in the summer of 1789, Jean-Paul Marat was initially somewhat pro-monarchy. After all, he had been working for the king's younger brother, but very quickly he turned against the king. 
By September 1789, Marat started editing a newspaper, L'Ami du Peuple, aka the Friend of the People, which was very radical and said that it was the moderates, not the royalists, who were going to destroy the revolution. By 1791, Marat was suggesting things like the fact that the monarchy should be abolished, but he didn't quite fully support, you know, killing the king just yet. Due to his newspaper and his political ideas, he soon became a delegate to the National Convention, where he got a larger stage to promote his political ideals. He was very much supported by the lower-class Parisians, specifically the Jacobins, due to some of his economic policies, like the idea that the state should sponsor worker training and that there should be fairer income tax policies to help the lower classes, and as a result, the Jacobins made him one of the most important members of the convention and one of the leading radical mountain members. As a result, Marat became more and more radical and used his power to really speak out against the Girondins. Because remember, the Girondins tend to be more moderate, and Marat absolutely despises moderates. Also, Marat has some sort of skin disease. It's a little bit unclear what exact skin disease he had, because remember, we're in the 1700s, no doctor is really all that competent or keeping the best medical records. What we do know is that he had super itchy skin that burned, especially around his anus, which is a fun and lovely image that I'm really glad to share with all of you. In order to help alleviate some of the symptoms, Marat had to stay in a bath most of the time. Most contemporary scholars who have studied this believe he had some really severe type of dermatitis. So that is Jean-Paul Marat, the man who Charlotte Corday wants to murder more than anything. On July 11th, Charlotte Corday arrives in Paris. She quickly visits a Girondist friend of hers and tries to let him know what exactly she's planning, but for various reasons, she doesn't quite manage it. The next day, she goes out and buys a very plain wooden knife that has an extremely elaborate handle. Like, all of the contemporary sources cannot stop emphasizing how fancy the handle of this knife is. Once she buys the knife, she hides it in the jacket she's wearing because she doesn't want anyone to know what she's up to. She's a smart want to be assassin like that. Then Charlotte has to figure out exactly how to kill Jean-Paul Marat. Her initial plan is to find Marat at the Champ de Mars and kill him in the middle of a ceremony that's commemorating Bastille Day, but she realizes that plan is pretty unrealistic, so she comes up with a second plan which is to kill him while she's speaking in front of the convention and then get murdered by the crowd there. But then her friend lets him know, but then her friend lets her know that Marat doesn't really go out in public all that often, thanks to his weird skin disease, so the idea of killing him in front of the convention just isn't going to work out. So she's going to have to come up with a new way of meeting him and then killing him, and that way of meeting him will involve her somehow getting access to his house. 
Charlotte, though, isn't going to let that little detail stop her. She convinces Marat to meet with him by writing him a letter that says she has inside information about the Girondists and she'll see him at noon the next day. This first letter doesn't work. He is not at all interested. So she writes him a second letter under a vaguely fake name. She uses the name Marie Corday instead of the name she actually goes by, Charlotte Corday, and in this letter she calls him friend of the people and keeps appealing to his patriotism, and it works. John Paul Marat agrees to see her the next day. So, the next day, July 13th, at around 7pm, Charlotte Corday goes to Jean Paul Marat's house at the Rue de l'École de Medicine, number 18. Apparently, Charlotte is wearing all white except for a green ribbon and hides her knife in one of the many folds of her bodice. Apparently, Charlotte purposefully chose a dress with a higher neckline than was fashionable in order, one, to look more modest when she was seized by the police, and two, more practically, to hide her knife. When she arrives at the house, she gets greeted by Marat's wife, a.k.a. Simone Havrard, who was actually his mistress and housekeeper. Simone gets some weird vibes off of Charlotte and tries to actually keep Charlotte from seeing Marat, but Charlotte manages to talk her way past Simone and get inside to the room where Jean-Paul Marat is having one of his baths because he's suffering from a particularly bad outbreak of his skin condition. When Charlotte and Jean-Paul Marat finally meet, he is apparently working on a letter to the National Convention about what they should do with some new supporters of the Bourbons who have arisen and are causing trouble for the country. Charlotte goes in, and the two start talking. In order to keep up her cover of a good pro-revolutionary who has dirt on the Girondists, she gives him the name of some Girondin dissidents in Normandy. Moran nods and says yes, he will make sure they are guillotined post-haste. Upon hearing this news, Charlotte is absolutely overcome with anger. She pulls her knife out from the folds of her dress and stabs Marat straight in the heart, killing him almost immediately at the age of 50. Apparently, the last words he manages to get out of his mouth are, To me, my dear, to me, which are aimed at Simone. Simone, as well as one of Marat's other servants, immediately run into the bathing room and watch as Marat dies. After killing Marat, Charlotte doesn't try to run away. She just waits there and gets arrested by the French police. In the process, she almost gets torn apart by an angry crowd, but physically, she is fine. The only really bad like physical injury she gets is the fact that her dress pretty much gets torn to shreds, and Charlotte is really upset by this because she doesn't want the crowd to see her bare chest, which that maybe shouldn't be your main priority, Charlotte. 
she is immediately sent to prison and interrogated. Three days later, on July 16th, Charlotte Corday goes on trial with massive quotation marks because it's clear from the outset that Charlotte Corday is going to be sentenced to death because Marat is a massive hero of the people and, more importantly, the Jacobins are in charge of all trials going on in Paris at the moment. In the lead-up to the trial, Charlotte Corday goes through interrogation. During these interrogations, she completely confesses to murdering Jean-Paul Marat. She doesn't deny what happens or her role in the murder. Instead, she says the idea was all hers. There was no larger conspiracy. No one forced her into killing Marat. And she did it because she felt like Jean-Paul Marat was going to cause a civil war in France and further tear the country apart. Throughout the interrogation, her questioners were more focused on whether or not she was a virgin than on why she did it and what her motivation was and where she got the idea from and how she carried it out, which, you know, really fun priority for a line of questioning and probably a line of questioning that would not have occurred if she was a man. Just saying. During the trial, she gets convicted of death almost immediately. Surprise, surprise. But she does conduct herself incredibly well during her turn on the witness stand. She admits to everything, says she doesn't feel bad about it, and gives the very famous line, I killed one man to save a hundred thousand. She also appeals to the judges to leave some of her inheritance aside to her lawyer so her lawyer can actually get paid instead of confiscating all the money she had and giving it straight to the state. She also sits throughout the trial in a way to make it easier for the official trial portrait painter to capture her portrait, and that ends up working because that portrait of her ends up being one of the classic images of Charlotte Corday. So even though she is facing near certain death, she does handle herself quite well, and her contemporaries, even the ones who don't like her for political reasons, do comment on that. The day after her trial, on July 17, 1793, Charlotte Corday is executed via guillotine. She is 24 years old at the time of her death, and her execution takes place at the Place de la Révolution. Before her execution, Charlotte famously pinned the certificate from her baptism onto her dress so that people would be able to identify her body after her head was cut off. Apparently, when she was being carted to the guillotine, it began to rain, and the rain stopped right when she reached the guillotine, which is very cinematic, and all of her contemporaries took note of that. Once she got to the guillotine, she showed extreme bravery. She didn't have to be forced to put her head on the machine. She didn't need help placing her head in the right spot or anything like that, in contrast to many other political prisoners who were executed. And once again, many of her contemporaries noted that and praised her for that. After her head was cut off, the executioner apparently lifted the head and slapped one of the cheeks in a final insult to Charlotte, and legend had it that the cheek that was slapped turned 
bright red as if she were blushing and slash or outraged with her fate, but let's be real, that almost certainly did not happen. After her death, Charlotte's body was most likely thrown in ditch number five of the cemetery of the Madeleine en rue Anjou Saint-Honoré, which is where most of the victims of the Parisian terror went. However, that cemetery then got closed down in 1794 after the reign of terror ended. The cemetery was then bought by a man named Monsieur de Clouseau, which, once again, sorry for mispronouncing. He put a cross where he said her grave was, but let's be honest, he probably didn't know where her grave was because people in the Reign of Terror were just being dumped into these cemeteries en masse. Then he said that Charlotte's body got moved in 1815 to the specific cemetery in the Montparnasse neighborhood, except that that specific cemetery didn't open until 1824, so it seems unlikely that her body got moved there. Apparently, her skull eventually made its way to Lucien Bonaparte's grandson, Prince Roland, who got it from a friend whose aunt's dead husband had owned it, but the likelihood of that skull being Charlotte's actual head is basically non-existent, especially since there are a ton of other stories that say her head got stolen immediately after her execution, which means we really have no idea what happened to either Charlotte Corday's head or body. Rip Charlotte. Even after her death, Charlotte continued to have quite an influence, specifically on the idea of the public role of women during the French Revolution. Charlotte Corday really freaked out the French revolutionary government about the idea of women being counter-revolutionaries. Before Charlotte Corday, non-noble women were seen as being extremely pro-revolutionary, the most famous example being the women who took part on the March on Versailles. However, after her execution, we see this huge backlash against female revolutionaries, especially female revolutionaries who were Girondists, the major examples being the execution of Madame Roland and Olympe de Gouges, both of whom were female Girondists. Overall, we see a lot more tightening on the types of revolutionary activities that women are allowed to partake in. But Amelia, I'm sure you're asking, what about Charlotte Corday's nemesis slash victim? What are people thinking about Jean-Paul Marat post-death? Well, he had a very different immediate legacy than Charlotte Corday. While she was reviled and her body was dumped in a ditch somewhere and her head went missing to history, Jean-Paul Marat was still beloved by the people of Paris. He had a giant-ass state funeral. His heart was embalmed and bought its own special little tomb because that was a thing that happened to revolutionary martyrs, to French revolutionary martyrs in the 1780s. The rest of his body was interred in the Pantheon and the Marquis de Sade himself gave the eulogy. Due to the whole cult of the supreme being thing that Robespierre was so into, Marat kind of became a saint and busts of him started to replace 
crucifixes throughout Paris. However, all of this started to fall apart after the Thormodor reaction happened and the reign of terror ended because, well, everyone hated the Jacobins and wanted to undo everything that the Jacobins had done, including turning Marat into this quasi-saint. Once the reign of terror was ended, his body was moved to the Church of Saint-Antoine-du-Mont, and I'm not really sure what happened to his little heart tomb thing. Hopefully it's out there somewhere living its best embalmed afterlife. Both Corday and Marat's legacy still lives on. Jean-Paul Marat nowadays is probably best known due to the portrait of him dying that Jacques-Louis David painted, where Marat is this Jesus-like martyr figure whose wounds are in the location where Christ was crucified instead of where he was actually stabbed. This David painting of Marat is fascinating in my opinion. You don't see any poor skin condition. You have this like glowing lighting where he looks almost angelic and it really casts Jean-Paul Marat into this angelic hero martyr figure. Meanwhile, Charlotte Corday was treated absolutely terribly in the immediate revolutionary media. She was portrayed as this very pro-nobility, anti-revolutionary figure. Many depictions of her in the 1790s drew her in these over-the-top wigs and elaborate dresses in order to tie her to other unpopular anti-revolutionary women such as Marie Antoinette. However, in the 1800s, specifically after the 1848 revolution, Charlotte Corday began to be treated much less negatively and began to be seen as this figure of French liberty. For example, in Les Miserables, Victor Hugo referenced her as this positive figure of French revolutionary spirit, and in the 1860s, this very famous French painting of her positioned her in front of a map of all of France, once again tying Charlotte Corday to the idea of French nationalism and the French spirit. And now, in more contemporary imagination, she became linked to Marianne, aka the French image of liberty and French idealism. So, Charlotte Corday and the murder of Jean-Paul Marat. For those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap. Future assassin Charlotte Corday was born in 1768 in the Normandy area of France to a minor noble family that by the 1760s was very much living in genteel poverty. Due to her mother's death, she was raised with her older sister in a convent in Cayenne, Normandy, where she got a pretty stellar education and really got to learn all about the French Enlightenment. As the French Revolution began picking up, she got a lot of political influence from two of the convent's leader's nephews, one who was really interested in the Girondin political movement and one who was more interested in the royalist state of affairs. In 1791, the convent got shut down. Charlotte and her sister 
moved to the city of Cayenne to live with an aunt, where Charlotte continued reading and thinking about politics. Because Cayenne was a center of the Girondist movement, remember, the Girondins were the slightly more moderate leading political faction of the day, Charlotte very quickly became a major Girondin sympathizer. By June 1793, within Paris, the Mountain, aka the more radical of the two leading groups, had the upper hand and began arresting and executing many Girondins, which Charlotte was not a big fan of. She decided that Jean-Paul Morat, a leading radical publisher and fan of the lower-class Jacobins in Paris, was to blame for the troubles facing the Girondins, and she decided that the only way to help the Girondins was to murder Marat, and that she was the one to murder Marat. On July 9th, 1793, she left Normandy and moved to Paris to put this plan to murder Marat into action. She arrived in Paris a few days later, on July 11th, and by July 13th, she had a knife and had written Marat a letter saying that she had inside information on the Girondins and managed to get an invite to meet him in person. Due to a serious skin condition that Marat had, she had to meet him while he was taking a bath. The two had a little conversation. She began spilling the beans, as it were, on the Girondins. He said that he couldn't wait to execute the Girondins. Charlotte was furious, pulled out the knife, stabbed Marat in the heart, killing him almost immediately. Because Charlotte Corday had just murdered one of the leaders of the French Revolution, she was almost immediately arrested by the police and soon went on trial. The trial was pretty much a sham, and Charlotte was sentenced to death. Surprise, surprise. However, during the trial, she acquitted herself really well. She showed a lot of bravery, was very polite to everyone, which made even the most rabid supporters of the revolution have to concede that, yeah, she was really brave, all things considered. The day after the trial, on July 17th, at the age of 24, Charlotte Corday was taken to the Place de la Revolution and was guillotined. After her execution, we don't know where her body went. It was dumped in a ditch of the cemetery where all executed political prisoners went. There were a lot of rumors about what happened to her head, but most of them most likely aren't true. Charlotte Corday's death had quite the legacy on the role of women in the revolution. Right after the fact, she was a very unpopular political figure, but in the aftermath, as time went on, she became more and more popular and now is very much linked to ideas around French liberty and French nationalism. Meanwhile, Jean-Paul Marat had a giant state funeral and very briefly became a saint-like figure because welcome to the cult of supreme being. Most of my research for this episode came from Alphonse de Lamartine's biographies and portraits of some celebrated people, Francois Ponsard's book Charlotte Corday, A Tragedy, Jeanette 
Don Alstein's book, Charlotte Corday, and Joan Johnson Lewis's book article in of Charlotte on Charlotte Corday. As always, for a full bibliography and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for future episode ideas or series ideas, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next time, I will be covering yet another Charlotte who has something to do with disease and quarantines, kind of, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. As always, if you want to help out the podcast, you can become a patron at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. And you can also message me on social media. I'm on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod and on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or you can tell me how I'm doing. Rate and review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!